0: Gracious Lord, thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life, and that apart from you we have nothing, Lord, but with you we have all things. And so we pray that you would shine your light upon our path, that as we walk into your truth, into your word this morning, you would illuminate our pursuit of you, even as we see how you are pursuing us. In your holy name we pray. Amen. All right, so... Today we're up to our third heresy of Nestorianism, yay. Like, oh, I was just thinking about Nestorianism the other day, I was hoping we were gonna talk about it. Well, friends, you are in luck. But I wanna start it with my uh, favorite German atheistic philosopher. Who's that with the big mustache? Anybody? Friedrich Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, who uh, famously said, God is dead, all right? God is dead. Incidentally, a PK, it's a pastor's kid, Lutheran pastor's kid, not great. So I'm always praying for Sam and Lewis. Uh, like, and if they start growing long mustaches, then I'm really going to be a little bit unsettled yeah. about that. God is dead, he said. That's a horrible thing. We would never, ever say that. Let me point you to a hymn from our own hymnal, O Darkest Woe. O Sorrow Dread. Our God is dead, upon the cross extended. There his love enlivened us as his life was ended. Isn't that interesting? The notion, the idea, I mean, the very phrase is there. God is dead. Our God is dead. On the cross, of course, Nietzsche meant something very different. But how could we say that? Ask Christians, or should we throw that out of the hymnal? You might also make that case, that's all right. But how could we say that? And is it right? To do so, not asking your answer now, but this is kind of uh, this is what thinking about the heresy of Nestorianism helps us to answer this question. In what sense could we say that on the cross, God is dead? It's a mind-blowing thought, and we'll unpack it in this morning's study. But before we do, as we've been doing each week throughout the study, a quick quiz for you i'm not gonna lie this is the hardest one yet all right so again as i've had each time a little asterisk this is for fun only this is not a verdict on your faith we're not going to cast you out as a heretic you get any of these wrong all right it's just for fun but quiz question number one jesus's divine and human natures are like two boards glued together true or false number two mary should not be called the god bearer but only the Jesus-bearer. Number three, the incarnation of Jesus occurred at the Annunciation, when the angel Gabriel came and announced to Mary, greetings, oh highly favored one. Number four, through baptism and faith, we are partakers of the divine nature. And number five, to the point we were just discussing, it can rightly be said that in the cross, God died. Whew. All right, got some heavy, deep, and real stuff there today. You're like, I was just enjoying my donut, Pastor. Uh, we're talking about this. But it's good stuff. But first, what is Nestorianism? Well, like some of the other heresies we've seen, this one is also named after a dude, Nestorius. Not high on the Social Security list of name baby names this past year. I know Ethan and Laura were like, Everly or Nestorius, and a little with Everly, I'm glad they did. Um, but I want you to notice that there's a kind of progression that's unfolding here with these different heresies. As the, the church and the early Christians are kind of trying to, to clarify and articulate what do we believe? Like there's so many questions that hadn't been answered or settled. They're wrestling with what they learned in the scriptures, what God had done in their midst. And so the, the first heresy we talked about was Arianism, which is fundamentally asking, is Jesus God? Is he divine or is he just a creature, the greatest of all creatures, but merely a creature this is the question of Arianism. But then a couple of weeks ago, we saw docetism or Apollinarianism, to name after the guy who was especially espousing it, went the other direction. Is Jesus human? So, or is he just like a phantasm? Is he almost a hologram? We said that there's even contemporary religions that within Islam that has a a kind of a docetist sort of view where it's like Jesus wasn't really human even. And now, as it continues to unfold, this week's heresy and next week of Eutychianism, are both going to be asking this question of how do Jesus's divine and human natures relate to one another? Okay, so those first two uh, heresies, is Jesus God? Is he divine? Is he human? Well now having said that he is human and divine, there's both of those, how do those two natures relate to one another? What does it mean for him to be both human, to be both fully man and fully God? How does that fit together in one person. Or for you visual learners, you might look at it like this. So you've got the divine nature on the one hand, you've got the human nature on the other hand, and then it's this question, how do these two natures relate? And I realize the word nature isn't maybe the most helpful. This is just the word that theologians tend to use to describe it. Um, I'm trying to think of what other, other terms we might use rather than nature. I mean, it's like the, the person, the the isness of it. Oh, so, you know, I'm not sure that's better, actually. Um, but this is the idea: like those two essences of the divine and the human. How do those relate in Jesus? Okay. Now, before I go any further, any just initial thoughts or questions, reflections so far? Some pretty heavy stuff. So, at any time, you got a question? Don't hesitate to, to raise your hand. All right. So, the number one on your handout: Nestorianism is the heresy that denies the unity of Jesus' natures. So Nestorianism divides the two natures of Jesus in half. Okay? So they are utterly separate. We'll see why this is a heresy in a moment. Let me just say a few words about Nestorius himself. So there he is. Handsome guy. They all had incredible beards back then. Um, he lives circa 386 to 450 AD. Again, this was just a very ripe time for the, the development of Christian doctrine in the 4th uh, the and 5th century. So much is happening then. And Nestorius was the, the patriarch bishop of Constantinople, not Istanbul. Constantinople? Any, they might be giant fans in here? No. This is a 90s rock band. It's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Where's my wife when I need her? Okay, um, so he's in charge of a lot of souls. He's overseeing a large flock in Constantinople. So this is not just some guy who's off in a corner someplace. He's somebody who had real influence and oversight at this time. He would be opposed by another important dude from that, those days, which was Cyril of Alexandria. So Alexandria was another one of these great important cities um, of Al- Alexandria and Egypt, still a city today. But then ultimately Nestorius would be condemned by the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. Just a little bit about Nestorius. What is Nestorianism? So this is in some ways carrying forward this anti-Docetist point of view. So again, the Docetists were um, dismissing or downplaying the human nature of Jesus saying that he wasn't really human. So the anti-Docetists are are, um, wanting to really stress that humanity of Christ. Like, let's not lose sight of the fact that Jesus is fully man as well as fully God. And this came to a head around the time of uh, Nestorius with the use of a term, of like a slogan, a catchphrase, and that term was Theotokos. Let me hear you say Theotokos. Theotokos. All right, there's your, your Greek lesson for today, which literally means God-bearer that was being used to describe Mary. Christians were using, pious Christians were using the word theotokos to describe Mary. So that Mary in her womb, as she was pregnant, she was carrying God in her belly. Now this was a way of, certainly of extolling Mary and uh, according her dignity and just in the history of, of the faith and how important Mary's role was. It was that, but more significantly, was, it wasn't so much about Mary, ultimately, as it was about Jesus. Like, is it right, is it appropriate to call Mary the God-bearer, the one who has uh, Jesus in, the, the God himself in her flesh, or would it be more appropriate to say that he's, she's the Jesus-bearer? Um, Nestorianism also then denied that Jesus was a single person, God and man. And I'm not sure to what extent they would say this explicitly, but the upshot of it is that you don't have this united Christ where he is God and man. You have, in a sense, like this sort of schizophrenic Jesus, almost where he has these two natures and never the twain shall meet. And so an image that would have been used is that of like two boards being pressed together. Okay, So each of the boards have their own um, you know, separate nature uh, and their, their own um, substance, if you will. And if you press them together, yeah, they happen to be together, but there isn't a, a kind of intermingling, there isn't a unity about it. They're just two things that happen to be put together. Right? Does that make sense? This is kind of the image of Nestorianism, the image of Jesus from that Nestorian perspective. In more modern times, this leads to notions like, you don't hear this as much anymore, but certainly um, several decades ago or hundred years ago, people would talk about the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. So they would say, well, Jesus was a historical person. He was a traveling itinerant rabbi in Israel 2,000 years ago. But the notion of Christ, well, that's more of the mythology that has sprung up around Jesus. And so, you know, he, he wasn't really both of those things at the same time. It's like one is the actual historical figure, whereas Christ is more the divine idea that we ascribe to Jesus. But these things don't actually connect with one another. That kind of idea is a more modern reflection, I would say, of Nestorianism. All right, pause there. Questions about Nestorius or Nestorianism. Do we get hiccups going on over there? I know. I, my jokes are so funny. I appreciate that, Everly. That's really good. Yeah, George. So, um, I'm, uh, I don't know if they have, if anybody knows, but what was, uh, that was about the time of the Council of Nicaea, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Council of Nicaea is 325. So, but it's within a century of it, yeah. But there must have been groups of people with different philosophies like yeah. the sort of followers. Right, you know. yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, it continued to be, things weren't just settled at the Council of Nicaea. Like at, at that moment they were able to, to render a verdict on Arianism, but that didn't mean that other things didn't spring up after it. And so we saw the, the Docetism came in and you have these kind of different tribes. And, it's hard to say. I don't know that anyone could say today how many were there, and we can say with more certainty of where they were located because it tended to be very geographical. And in an age before you've got you know mass media and, and communications, it would be more kind of localized. Um, it was almost like a renaissance. Of- When people started coming up yes. with new ideas. Yeah, I mean, it was a very fertile time theologically, for better and for worse, right? <laughs> Where they were really articulating and clarifying, crystallizing the essence of Christian theology. But also, we get a lot of, of heresies that are springing up too. Yeah, Bob?
1: Yeah, some of this comes from a genuinely uh, pious and yep. intended intention to connect with people with the gospel. Yeah. So let's say I'm going to a Greek community that is platonic in nature. So sure. It sees the ideal invisible and the physical real, but this is the real, yep. this is a shadow, yep. right? So you get you've got a two-world thing. So if I'm Nestorius the missionary and want to come in and bring Jesus into this paradigm, yep oops, I've made a mistake, right. but nevertheless, I was attempting to yep. bring him. So, so they're always addressing philosophical presuppositions as they get into this.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, we've, we've seen this with, with each of these heresies, but reading more about Nestorius in particular, I was really struck by, he was, like you said, he was trying to be a pious follower of, of Christ and you know teacher of the truth. And he himself was responding and reacting to this anti-Docetism and saying, yeah, we, we don't want, to, we don't want to, to downplay the humanity of Jesus. We that's really important. Like you say, there's that missionary bent. And this is the struggle that every missionary has, right? To, the, to what extent do I try to enculturate and uh, accommodate the, the message of the gospel to the hearers so that I can convey it in a way that makes sense to them but without losing the essence of the message. It's a super fine line to toe. And that's why I, I do have some compassion for Nestorius in particular. Because you see what he's trying to do. When people are, start talking about Theotokos, so I mean very much in the Greek mindset, <clears throat> like the notion that God, I mean biblical, the notion that, that God would have a beginning is like that makes no sense. Right? God doesn't have a beginning nor does he have, a, have an end. You can't say that God died you can't say that god was born that just i mean it does not compute right these are just contradictions in terms that's where he's coming from and it makes sense the problem is jesus throws everything out the window like every all your philosophical categories now we need to reevaluate all of that not just jesus but now an understanding of god as trinity complicates all of those neat and tidy pictures that we might have had of god and of the world so you're welcome um, that's kind of, that's that's where we live. That's why we have to have Bible study and continue to, to wrestle with these things. It's difficult. All right. So just briefly, then I mean, I'm already kind of doing this. Just a case for Nestorianism. Yeah, Nestorianism. Nestorius himself really stressed the independence of Christ's two natures. You know, really um, bringing this out. And you know, it's not uh, a complete. Um, uh, it's not totally out, outside the, the question or the plausibility, the realm of belief. To say, as we said, Jesus' divine nature is eternal, without beginning or end, and so he cannot have a mother, at least from his divine perspective. And so we would say Mary shouldn't be called God-bearer, but simply Jesus-bearer. Okay? She's still great, still really important, but he, she wasn't the God-bearer per se, because how could how could God be born? Makes no sense. And you could point to scriptures where it seems like. There's this distinction that Jesus, even when he talks, like he talks in the third person a lot, right? I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. So is the Son of Man like the divine nature, and Jesus is the human nature, and it's kind of like two people in one body, and they're both there, but they're separate, like the two boards again? You read things like that, and I think it's understandable to hear, like, yeah, Jesus, what are you trying to say? Why do you talk that way sometimes? So I think that it's, it's helpful at least to have some sympathy from where they're coming from. But let's really nail down what's at stake in this. Because, again, it's so easy to just think, oh, this is just some highfalutin inside theological baseball or whatever. What's at stake is, first of all, is Jesus schizophrenic, Okay. I don't mean that in a a narrow, like, uh, clinical definition, but I mean, like, is there these two sides? Literally, like, schizophrenia means uh, that there's a schism within the mind, within the nature, okay? So is he that? Is there a Jesus of history and a Christ of faith? In which case, which part of Jesus atoned for our sins? How can we be united with God if God himself is not united in himself? And then, this is really interesting, especially in our day and age, where people are all lamenting and wringing their hands about all the d- division in our world. Like, maybe if there, was, if there was a fundamental division within God's own self, of like, you know, these two boards, well, then maybe we'd say, that's just, that's just the way that the world is. That it's just, there's that fundamental division within God's own self, and so we shouldn't expect it to be otherwise. Is the essence of the universe division or unity? It's another way of putting it. So there's a lot at stake in this as there is with each of these heresies. So let's get to then how do we refute it, right? And how have churches, how have uh, teachers of the church through the ages refuted this and pushed back against it? Well, number three on your handout then is Mary didn't conceive of half a savior. Mary didn't conceive of half a savior, okay? Um, You just think of this, well, let's go to to Luke chapter 1. The great Christmas, Advent, Gospel. And the Annunciation. Okay, so Luke chapter 1, picking up with verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the Virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you She was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you shall conceive you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, here we have in the Annunciation, this proclamation, declaration, that Mary is going to be the mother of twins, of, you know, the divine nature and the human nature. No. She's going to give birth to a son, Jesus. And this Jesus is going to be the son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Not to belabor the point, but it's very clear here that what she's giving birth to is this one child who is at once both God and man, and the son of God. And I mean, you can think of this just by analogy to your normal, typical human births, okay? And we had a baby here, but the baby left. So it's going to draw attention to baby, but um, you think about with a child. And Ethan, can you already tell? Are there features in Everly that you're like, oh, she's got my eyes or Laura's nose, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. What, for example? My nose. Yep. Your mustache. I thought that was really interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And we don't say, oh, well, she's half Ethan and half Laura, like. It's, this is a, a, a child. Every child, every person, brings together traits and features of both mom and dad. But they're united, right? You know, it's not like a half and half sort of thing. You don't split down the middle. But it's, it's together, okay? That's a crude analogy. But this is the idea, right? Of, that Jesus, in his own person, he, ha- he is of God the Father and also of the human Mary as his mother, both of those at the same time. This is, I mean, just the most basic idea that you can get rather than some kind of strange division between the two, okay? So she didn't conceive half a savior, but a whole person who has both those natures together at the same time. Next, number four, the divine union is more matrimonial than incidental. Okay, what do I mean by that? Let's go to Galatians chapter four. So Galatians chapter 4, starting with verse 1, says this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, "Abba, Father." So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So what we see in Galatians chapter four is that now we have received; um, God Himself has come into us. You have the Spirit of God's Son, so that. You are united to God himself, okay? Not in a merely incidental sort of way, but as it says elsewhere in the scriptures, in a kind of matrimonial sort of way. God is the bridegroom who has united himself to you and me. That we have this deep, essential connection and union. So if that's true for us, how much more is that true of Jesus himself? That Jesus, within his own person, unites and brings together both the divine and the human. Not as incidental like the two boards coming together, but rather like matrimonial. Like a husband and wife now united in one person. I love the way that Psalm 85 puts it. It says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. This is the kind of of unity that ultimately we we have. I want to give you a different analogy from the, the two boards one, though, that, or from the matrimonial one, for that matter, um, one that was also common among the church fathers and our Lutheran tradition especially picked up on. Man, the pictures did not come out very well here today. Sorry about that. But um, as you can see, this is a waffle maker. and No. Um, <laughs> it, what, what do we have here? What Can anybody tell? Blacksmith. Yeah, it's like, a, like smithing, right? So you've got an iron, and the iron is hot. It's been, it's been warmed up. So this is an image that the fathers would use to describe what these two natures are like. That the human nature, if you will, is like the, the unwarmed uh, poker, or iron, as it were. Um, but that divine nature then suffuses it like the fire, like the heat in the iron. So that now they are inseparable. That there's the, 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 the heat of the fire and the iron itself, that now they're joined together. Basil the Great in the fourth century, put it this way. He said, in what manner is the deity in the flesh? Just as fire in iron, not by transition, but by impartation, for fire does not run out to the iron, but remaining in its place, imparts to it its own peculiar power, which isn't diminished by the impartation, and fills the entire mass that becomes partaker of it, okay? So this is, uh, I think, a more faithful way of understanding those two natures. Not the two boards put together, but of the fire and the iron. All right. And then one, one more here. In the crucifixion, we can say, God died. Because of this unity of, of the two natures, in the crucifixion, God himself dies. Just to give you one text to point at this, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And get this, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, that phrase, Lord of glory, is one of, uh, that is carrying a lot of heft there. This is evoking and echoing Old Testament scripture. The Lord of glory, the glorious Lord. This is speaking of, in a sense, Yahweh himself. And to think that you could crucify Yahweh is something that would have just blown the mind of any, anyone in that ancient mindset. Like, how is that possible? This just doesn't make sense that God himself could be crucified. But in Jesus, this is, he's not merely incidentally divine, but he is fully divine. Nor is he just kind of uh, an imitation of a human, but he's fully human. Both at the same time. Now, when he dies, then, does that mean that, like, for a time, all creation is suddenly off the hinges, like there's nobody at the wheel anymore? Well, God the Father still lives from all eternity. Okay, so this is part of the mystery of, of the Trinity. To be able to say at the same time, God is dead, and of course, the Alpha and the Omega lives and lives forever. Um, how are those both true at the same time? Well, this is, this is kind of the mystery of the, of the Trinity. But it is not inappropriate or wrong to say, as that hymn said that I shared at the beginning, on the cross, God is dead. He's truly human in that way. Just one other verse for you. <clears throat> Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God's blood. You and I, the church of God, obtained with God's own blood. Yeah, Bob.
1: I think he says it too in John. I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. Yeah. Nobody has that authority with God.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. He is, true, he is truly God. And as God, he has, it is his divine prerogative to lay down his life to die and to take it up again. Now, pause there for a second and think about what would be the significance of this other than just the fact that, wow, that's a mind-blowing kind of statement and maybe we need to revisit our Nietzsche. Uh, uh, no. um, why, why else might that be significant to say that in Jesus, God is dead? And How does that just further accentuate what jesus has done for us any thoughts on that yes sandy Mm. oh yeah if he died died. so um you know sandy's uh alluding to i think it's colossians one that in him all things hold together so what does that mean if he dies uh, I, I think of that famous line from uh, the, the poem, The Second Coming, I think is what it's called, Yeats' poem, where he says, uh, The center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. You know, things, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Um, so, I mean, what you see even in the Gospels is this kind of convulsion of creation. So, when Jesus dies on the cross, what are some of the things that happen? Earthquake happens. Yeah. What else? Oh, curtain. curtain temple torn in two. Yeah. Grades what else? A- Say again. Graves are open. Yeah. Zombies start coming out. It's a great Halloween gospel, right? Um, I don't. There, I have so many questions about that. That I. How long were they hanging around? And we're not told. But it does tell us that that happened, though. Anything else? Darkness. Darkness falls over the land for the hours, right? All of these things. What they amount to and add up to is, you know. <laughs> All things hold together in Christ. God is dead. It's like all creation is in convulsion. I mean, it, it almost is reverting to this state. I mean, like in your, when your computer is all getting all messed up and you're like, I just need to go back to factory settings. You know, you ever have that happen? Like, well, oh, control, alt delete, control, all delete. It's almost like creation is going back to factory settings when Jesus dies. Because remember what it's like at, at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. We see that it was tovu vabohu is the great Hebrew phrase. That it was formless and void and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's this sense of just like this, uh, of the, the chaos, right? That aboriginal chaos. It's almost as though when Jesus dies, it goes back to that. Not in full, of course, but I don't know. saying, just as you asked that, that's kinda, I think that's kind of what we see. Yeah. Yeah, Bob?
1: God goes all the way.
0: God goes all the way.
1: Yeah, that's just, the big thing. God
0: yeah. goes all the way. he doesn't he doesn't pull up short of death and say, I'm, "I'm with you guys all the way until I get to this place." But he goes the full length. Yeah, Tara. Also, because of baptism, when he died, we died. Yes. So we don't have to be scared of death because we've already died. Yes. And we're gonna be in it. That's exactly right. He because he truly died, and we are joined to him in baptism. We've died already, right? Um, I. I love the quote from the scene in the the movie The Revenant, which I can't exactly recommend to you because, although it's pretty cool, Leo DiCaprio gets attacked by a bear. So if you don't like Leo DiCaprio, maybe you'd like the movie. But anyway, he essentially gets left for dead. And then it becomes kind of a revenge story. Um, So there's there's that piece of it. And at one point, he's going to go after the guy who left him for dead. And his buddy is, is saying to him, how can you do that? You know, you're, you're so fortunate still to be here. Like, aren't you afraid? And what he says to him is, I ain't afraid of dying. I did it already. I'm like, oh, that'll preach. Yeah. This is, I, Tim, this is, it's so hard being a preacher. I, actually, Ann is the one who was hard for. Like, to watch movies with me is just terrible. But, yeah, because he died and you and I are joined to him, we don't have to be afraid of death. Because there's no place. I mean, this is Psalm 139. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your, from your spirit? Even if I make my bed in the grave in Sheol, even there, your hand will lead me. You have know, like you, you, already gone before. Everything. Everything. So, yes, God is dead. But God lives. So, Kind of, we're, we're, we're getting there already. I wanted to conclude with this point and say just this. You know, Jesus can't unite us with God if he's not united himself. But if he is, in fact, united, then we can be united to him. So let's go to, to Romans 6, kind of uh, getting at just this point. Romans 6, Paul has this great passage. You know, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Yes. No. He says, no. By no means. Because you've died to sin, so how can you still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. He doesn't just mean, like, metaphorically. He's like, you died already, right? You, you're, as it says in Colossians 3, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then verse five. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And uh, the the Greek word that's translated here is united with means literally to be planted with, right? So we, like you think of when Jesus says, uh, unless a, a seed is sown in the ground, it dies, then it will not bear much fruit. But if it dies, then it will. And so, Already that seed of Christ, that he died, and you have died with him. You've been planted with him, all right, ahead of time. And now we have that promise that we will also grow up in resurrection with him because we belong to him, right? That's the, the union that we have in Jesus because he is both God and man. And then Second Peter has this fascinating verse, and our uh, Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters make a lot, a lot of this, Probably more than we would want to, but still, it's here. Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Get this. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Uh, the, the famous um, axiom and adage of the Church Father Saint Athanasius comes into play here where he says that God became man so that man might become God. This is what the Eastern Orthodox call a theosis and we don't go quite that far as Lutherans but even to think of, of sanctification, process of sanctification and uh, it says in Romans 8.29 that you and I are being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Right? Call it theosis if you like, call it sanctification, but the point is we're, we are being caught up into that divine nature. We don't stop being human. We're ever and always human, but still we're becoming more and more like the one who was human and divine, like Christ. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just where... It, uh, one thing I read about, about Nestorianism, and he was referring to other heresies too, he says the problem with the heretic so often is that they were too conservative. And I was like, wait, what? He said, no, they're too conservative because when they were staring down the impressive, seemingly impossible truths and implications of the gospel, they laid up. They said, oh, that couldn't possibly be. That's just too grand and grandiose a promise. Like, we need to tamp this down a little bit. Whew, but with God... As the angel said to, to Mary, as, we, as Jesus said over and over again, with God, all things are possible. And we don't want to give short shrift to what the triune God, of, the one who's has the love that moves the sun and the other stars, Dante says. That that's what's at the heart of the universe, of all things, moving it together. That's what you and I are caught up into. And so often our God is just too small. I think this was part of the problem in the gospel today where the Pharisees come, well, should we uh, pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you can just imagine Jesus wanting to pull his hair out. Like, you guys are totally missing the point. (laughs) Like, your view of God and life under God's reign and realm is too small. We still get caught up in that too often today. Like, let God blow your mind. Because he will if we let him. All right. So, how not to be an historian? A few thoughts. One, honor Mary as the God bearer. This is not going to come up a whole lot. And I know we're not going to stand around talking about, hey, how's the Theotokos going lately? But um, uh, it is right and appropriate. This is meet and right so to do to call her the God bearer. Secondly, resist attempts to divide Jesus. In particular, this kind of notion of the Jesus of history, the Christ of faith. You know, you listen to talk radio. If they talk about Jesus, they might talk in these kind of terms. The historical Jesus or something. Say, no, that doesn't work that way, right? There's one Jesus. He is God and man. Next, celebrate the Annunciation. Uh, I mean, in the Christian tradition, the Annunciation was a lot bigger deal than we make of it today. March 25th, okay, because that's nine months before Christmas, right? Uh, March 25th is the day on which, I mean, some of, the, some of the early Christians would talk about the Annunciation, that this is the day where, like, now everything changes. And, I mean, it all swirls around this simple moment of Mary, probably like a 15, 16-year-old girl, who says, yes, her fiat, let it be, to, to God's incredible proclamation. That in that moment, now history reverses. And now, on. so that day of the... the um, the annunciation becomes the conception of, the, of God. I mean, in, in a sense, it's kind of the incarnation right there. This is also, this is a side note, but one of the reasons historically why we've dated Christmas the way that we do, because, let's see if I can get this right, um, So, because people will say, oh, that just has to do with kind of the pagan religion or so forth. One of the reasons his, historically and theologically why it is what it is is because we're able to backdate, we have with a uh, clearer confidence when Jesus was crucified because the scriptures are clear about that. And you can go back into the, the history and figure out on the calendar. Now, why does that matter? Because there was a belief among ancient Jews that the Messiah would die on the same day on which he was conceived. Okay. And so this notion that um, Jesus is con- um, dies on March twenty-fifth, then we work backwards from that. Then he's conceived on the same day. This was this was a popular kind of tradition. This is not a biblical thing, and so you know take it for what it's worth. But that was part of what played into it. Then all right, that's the day of his conception. Nine months later, December twenty-fifth. Again, you know that's interesting. You can take it with a grain of salt. Um, Read regularly John chapter 1, especially those first 14 verses, but speak of the, the Word made flesh. One thing I read this week is that uh, among early Christians, commonly when they were celebrating Holy Communion, they would read the whole chapter of John, John 1 whenever they were celebrating Communion. Because it was like, this is the Logos, the, the Word made flesh, the one who created, in whom all things hold together, who created all things. Now he meets us in simple bread and wine. And then finally, Say and sing with gusto, the glory be. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Because that is just a neat little encapsulation of our Trinitarian faith. Whew, all right. <laughs> Quiz answers then. Let's see here, how'd you do? Number one, Jesus' divine and human natures are like two boards glued together. True or false? False. False, false. no, more like the iron and the fire. Number two, Mary shouldn't be called God-bearer, but only Jesus-bearer, true or false? False, rightly we call her Theotokos, God-bearer. Number three, the incarnation of Jesus occurred at the Annunciation. True, that, in that moment.
1: Why, why does it say she will be, that the Holy Spirit will overtake
0: me? Yeah, I mean it's, Is that a Greek thing? No, I mean it's, it's in that moment, like she hasn't said yes yet, right? So just well, let, let it be, and then it's like it could, could be later. Week, it could be right next sorry, Wednesday. Are you doing anything, right? <laughs> um, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Fair enough, Hans. Fair enough. But the Hans, I'm not with Hans. I'm with
1: Hans. You're with
0: Hans. Okay. All right. Well, number four, through baptism and faith, we are partakers of the divine nature. True or false? True. True. We are caught up into that, and then finally, it can rightly be said that in the cross, God. Died. True. Big, heavy stuff. All right. Next week, Eutychianism, which is, unsurprisingly, like the flip side of Nestorianism, as that back and forth continues. Look forward to seeing you then. Thanks very much.